Independent. Expressive of a spirit of independence, self-confident, unconstrained. Hello, friends. My name is Joe Armstrong. Thank you ever so much for listening to Independence Day. This is the show that examines the changing face of the music business and the people who are doing the changing. Independence Day brings you independent artists, producers and music industry visionaries with in-depth interviews, live performances, and inside information, all without hype and direct from the artists who practice their craft. We've got a good show for you this week, friends. Our guest is Peter Himmelman. Singer-songwriter Peter Himmelman has parlayed his successful career in music into a cottage industry. He got his start in the mid-1980s, long before the internet revolutionized how people make, distribute, and listen to music, and he has continued to evolve by constantly finding new ways to tap into the creative well. Himmelman is prolific, but he has been able to maintain a high level of craftsmanship in his songs by balancing quality and quantity, and through his highly improvisatory live performances, at which he has been known to regularly make up new songs on the fly. His impeccable work ethic has been paying dividends for years. He has been nominated for an Emmy, a Grammy, and numerous other awards. He has scored music for television and movies and released dozens of songs through his Himmelvaults project. But Himmelman is far from all business. Along with his diversified creative endeavors, he has wisely kept his priorities in check by making the logical sacrifices necessary to maintain a healthy family and home life. When traditional revenue streams began to dry up in the age of streaming and file sharing, Himmelman's fortuitous and timely epiphany was to found Big Muse, a consulting company that helps organizations like McDonald's, The Gap, and Banana Republic foster team building and leadership through creativity. Himmelman's newest project is a book called Let Me Out, for which the subtitle neatly sums up the intended goal. Unlock your creative mind and bring your ideas to life. In Let Me Out, Himmelman peels back the curtain to share some of his secrets to help readers get out of their own way when it comes to the creative process. And who better to pen a book on channeling creativity than Peter Himmelman, who has made an avocation out of keeping up his creative output while deftly surfing the changes of life, music, and technology. Welcome to Independence Day, Peter Himmelman. Hey, Peter. How are you, man? How are you doing, Joe? I'm doing well. Good. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for coming all the way across town. (laughs) In this town, it's a big deal to come from uh, the west side over here to Eagle Rock to do some stuff. And uh, it's, I'm, I've been so looking forward to having you on the show because you've got such an interesting career. It goes back a pretty long way. And your career straddles that line in the music business where it was kind of the old paradigm versus the new paradigm. And you've kind of <laughs> glided across that line or maybe stumbled across that line, are still doing it, still making music, and you've written a brand new book about it as well. Um, coming out very, very soon. It's called Let Me Out. You've got a consulting company that helps people deal with creativity. Uh, Looking at your bio and researching you for this, the first question I have is like, when do you sleep? Well, I'm not the greatest nighttime sleeper. I'm a good napper. Okay. You know, I can take a nap in the afternoon. You know, I'm asked that question more than once. I, 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 I have a lot of free time, actually. Yeah. You know, like, Somehow, I think that has to do with, and I'm not sure I'm expert at it, but right. this idea of making use of time. So, yeah. you know, I've, do you know, I'll show up in like 20 minutes or 15. I'm like, which is it? Because like, you know, five minutes is a good long enough time to, to produce a child. Right. At least to, you know, right. get one started. You could do miraculous right. things in five minutes. I mean, yeah, arguably the most important thing that you would ever yeah, do. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really there's a way to compress time. Yeah. It's never going to be more than 5 minutes, but the qualitative aspect of time can be yeah. can be very deep. You know, the other thing is I just sort of have a restless nature. Yeah. And when things are sort of 
wow, this is working really well. This is so smooth and just effective and money's pouring in and just, yeah. I got it down. And that's really when I go to <laughs> sleep. You, is that when you're worried? or No, it's not so much that I'm, I, well, I am worried a bit then. And, and in some ways, those are the times when every human being shuts down. In other words, when it's a predetermined process, whatever it is, if you're especially in terms of relationships or anything dealing with creativity. And I certainly believe that relationships are creative or not, depending on the nature of If them. it's functioning. Yeah. And, and I do like to spend a, a fair amount of time discussing what creativity isn't, because it's a word that people use a lot. It's a word that people are curious about. It's something that people want to have and to achieve and they pay a lot of money for. And the I think the common sort of misunderstanding about creativity is that it's that it has something to do with the arts or mm-hmm. dance or poetry or music. And I keep saying that it doesn't really have to do with those things. It could. And conversely, you know, I'm a quote, artist type. I have a little goatee and, you know, a requisite hat that I wear and I play the guitar. So all those things that you'd think make a creative person. But many times I catch myself following this very process I'm talking about, which is repeating yourself again and again. And I find myself not in a very creative space. Whereas an actuary or a mail carrier or an insurance person, somebody with a title whose job perhaps for many people resonates as clearly uncreative is in fact in a very creative place in their life. The way they interact with people, the way they interact with their spouses and their children. To me, creativity is the reduction of fear Mm -hmm. and being alive in that moment without fear. It doesn't last forever. You get six, eight minutes, maybe an hour at a time. Yeah, And then fear comes, you close up, and hopefully you get it again. Yeah. It, there's, I'm, there's another book I'm reading. It's somewhat similar to yours, and it's a little bit shorter. I think it's called The War, The War of Art or The War for Art. Sure, The War, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I've been very much enjoying it. And, and it talks a lot about what your book talks about, which is this fear that kind of you've mentioned that several times in that, in that description. Um, and how that impedes our, our progress. It gets in the way of our work. I think he could, that author calls it our work, like we're trying to do our work, whatever that is, whether that's, like you said, delivering the mail or writing an album or <laughs> who knows, you know, fixing an engine. Right. Um, and, I mean, let's, let's talk a little bit about how, why a book to, to, to address this topic. It's like, it seems like, you know, you're a tranquil guy, at least that's how you, that's your, your, my perception of you, sitting here in a room with you. Um, there's a kind of a Zen aspect to what you do. Um, Little do you know. Yeah. Well, but that's exactly it. <laughs> right. Like the people, Tom Petty has said that in interviews too, because they, you know, everyone says when they think of me, they see me as like this super calm, laid back guy with my top hat and my suede coat and my guitars and my band. And I've been doing the same awesome music for 30 years, but he's like inside, I'm the most neurotic guy you'll ever see. So, uh, I mean, is that an aspect of your personality? Yeah, absolutely. Well? I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm spinning all the time, full of anxiety. I'm just this kind of languid 
aspect? Is this something that, you know... Is it a coping mechanism? It, it might be. I mean, it's my natural sort of the you know body rhythm and so yeah. on, the way that I speak. Um, I'm comfortable now sitting with you. I don't know you that well, so I'm kind of giving you like a relaxed yeah. look. Um, when I think about it, you know, I'm just riddled with... Well, it depends how you characterize it. Right. If you call it anxiety or anxiousness, it will be debilitating. If you call it energetic, right? in other words, it's the same thing. There's a lot of energy going at all times. And I think that's true for most people. Um and I think I'm endeavoring to characterize it as something useful. Right. I think maybe to put another way, put it another way, is that you're you're focusing on the fight aspect of fight or flight because it's a normal human reaction to any perceived threat. Whether the threat is real or not is almost irrelevant. Right. If you're inside your head, you perceive it as a threat. And this goes back to caveman days. You know, it was a tiger or a mammoth or a thunderstorm or a whatever it was that we were threatened by. So our brains evolved to the point where it's like, okay, we're either going to have to fight this or we're going to flee. And I think there's a certain amount of human nature that goes into that as well, like whether you are by nature more inclined to fight or to flee, right? Yeah, I think the fight or flight are basically very similar reactions. I mean, they're reactions to a stress. One, One is whatever is the most propitious at the time is what you'll do, but they're, they're... they're the same kinds of reactions. Right. They are. Well, you're, you're working. To, I'm sorry to interrupt, but mm-hmm. you're working to get out of that situation by one way or another. Is the most expedient way to get out of that situation mm-hmm. going to be to flee to a safer location, or is it going to be to vanquish the whatever that's threatening right, you right. immediately in front of you? It always comes down to you know whatever's the the, the most beneficial. Right. Well, it, but I think that one of the interesting points is that even though. It's very rare, I would imagine, that we would be sort of faced with a mastodon or something. <laughs> Not so much anymore. The life-threatening things. I mean, they could happen. They certainly happen to people. There are wars all over the, the world. But for the most part, there aren't these life-threatening uh, experiences. But we do, as a species feel life-threatened by somebody not liking our work or rejecting us romantically. These are truly mortal fears. And, you know, part of what I go into the the book, I have this character called Marv, Mm -hmm. and he's just a little milk-toasty guy, and he lives in all of our heads. And he stands for majorly afraid of revealing vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And I've found, you know, no matter how wealthy you are, no matter how famous, how beautiful, nothing can safeguard you from Marv's protestations mm-hmm. when you're trying to do something that you consider new or perhaps challenging. And what Marv is saying is, look, Peter, if you go on Joe's show, and you sound like an idiot, you will fail. And everyone will see you as a failure, and that will engender shame. 
And let me tell you, Marv says, he gets you kind of transfixed. He says, shame engenders abandonment. Mm -hmm. The shameful among us are abandoned. And furthermore, Peter, the people who are abandoned, if you remember back to when you were an infant and preverbal, abandonment meant death. That there is a mortal fear connected in some subconscious limbic stem, amygdalic brain, uh, with someone not liking your new album. There is on a on a an emotional level a fear of death, and it's not a small thing, and it's not just something you can wish away. Right. And what I posit throughout the book is that the only way to contend with it is to simply take action on that thing that you fear. And a small action is enough. For example, I always wanted to fly a plane all my life. And I was afraid, you know, I'd crash. And now that I have four kids and I don't want to like, oh my God, on a whim, he wanted to fly. And what an idiot, he died. But I did one small thing. I walked. I walked. I walked to my chair. I sat on the chair. So it's an accumulation of small things. I turned on my computer. All easily done. And then I googled test flight times in Santa Monica. Now... As soon as you take action on this thing, this Marv character, this voice of fear, he all of a sudden says, oh, Peter, you want to fly? That's cool. That's great. But if you're not in process, if you're not in motion, Marv is all over your ass. He wants to protect you. This force is the life-affirming, life-giving thing in in your whole system. He's the most on your side of any. It doesn't want you to fail. But if you're afraid, oh my God, the threat is there. Once you take action, oh, cool. Everything's good. I'll have a I'll take a coffee break. Yeah. Let you do your thing. Yeah, you there was a metaphor in the book where you talk about kind of strapping him into the back of the car because it could be beneficial to bring him along. Because it's going to keep you safe and keep without, you. Without yeah, without him you, you would you would be dead. I mean it's right. like it's really your amygdalic brain. It's right. your survival instincts. Different artists look at it different ways. Jonathan Brook, singer-songwriter, mm-hmm. uh, refers it... <laughs> I've heard her refer to it as the you suck demon, mm-hmm. which is a different thing. Like That's how she en- envisions it. Like Every time you'd go to do something positive in your life, again, be it writing a song, be it planting a new garden, buying a car, anything, like you said, anything in moving forward or outward in your life, anything new, even in a small level, it, it's back there going, no, don't do it. No, don't do it. No, don't do it. And I like it how you found a way to kind of turn that into an ally in a way to, you know, realize that since you can't really get rid of it, it's always going to be there to kind of, you know, you can like, it's like a big boat that can kind of turn it towards you to work for you because that, that fight instinct, the other half of that fight or flight Mm -hmm. can be again, beneficial. There's that word. Anyway, I'm talking with uh, Peter Himmelman. He's my guest on Independence Day this week. Thank you, Peter, for joining us. It's such a delight to talk to you today. Uh, Let's play a little bit of music. Uh, You've been around for a while. You've got a lot of music to choose from, but we've picked something new here, Uh, brand new. You're working on a project with Steve Berlin of uh, Los Lobos fame, and this is a track called Sacrificial. Tell me just a little bit about this. Well, you know, it's a song that I wrote. I wrote about 
you know, songs is sort of sort tumbling out at a certain time. There's a gestation period, and then there's like a whole birth process. And sometimes I'm like a possum or something, and it's a whole brood <laughs> comes out. Yeah. And I gave Steve Steve Berlin maybe fifty five songs to Good Lord. listen to and demos. And this is one of the songs that I, I liked and he liked. He picked a lot of songs for this new album that I wasn't sure of, you know. And this just came out sounding really good. I'm using a band of guys from Chicago. It's a guy from the South Side on drums called, his name is Chuck Lacey, amazing bass player named Matt Thompson, and a great guitarist named Scott Tipping, who was friends with Steve, and that's how I got together with him. All right, very nice. So this is Peter Himmelman. It's a brand new track. This will come out on the record coming out in the fall. The record will be called There Is No Calamity. The track is Sacrificial. Peter Himmelman on Independence Day. Sacrificial, do you feel sacrificial like you can't keep the vultures at bay? Sacrificial, do you feel sacrificial like you can't keep the vultures at bay? 
My name is Joe Armstrong. Thank you ever so much for listening to Independence Day. We come to you Wednesday night, 7 p.m. These are podcasts. You can listen to them anytime you want, 24-7. If you've got the Apple Podcasts app, we're on there as Independence Day Radio. You can also drop by indepday.com. That's I-N-D-E-P-D-A-Y.com to hear 100 and, geez, about 70 episodes of Great Musicians. Peter, thank you for joining the Independence Day family. I appreciate it so much. Thanks, Joe. Lots of good people here, man. I'm, I'm proud to bring all these musicians to people. Every musician's got a story. You know, and uh, we're humans on top of it, so I, I love talking about these topics. So thank you for taking the time. Uh, Peter, you can learn about it, peterhimmelman.com. When did you actually, when did you get started? Like when, like your first release? Was it the 80s or the early 90s? I was trying to figure that out. Well, I had a band called Sussman Lawrence. We were okay. a new wave band in Minneapolis. We put out two records in 19... I think it was like 1979. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, okay, 19... you go back even farther than I thought it was. Because I know the, the Jayhawks were kind of mid-'80s. That's yeah, like where we, were, I f- we were before them. That's where I kind of picked up the Minneapolis mm-hmm. thing was with the Jayhawks. Yeah, in those days, I mean, it's interesting how technology sort of affects things because to put out a record, it was a, a, it was a major undertaking. It was like building a ship back then. Yeah, I mean, a studio... Somehow you had to have at least a hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of gear so, yeah, at just minimum. Gear. Yeah. So you know it. I was a good talker, and uh, <laughs> we had a good band, and talked somebody into making a record, and we made some money, made another record. It just was like I remember at the time in Minneapolis, maybe there were five or six bands in total that had a full album yeah so in and of itself you know as a, from a technological sort of point of view it definitely changed your stature immediately right all of a sudden you had something that you could take to a radio station be played on um you could be in more places than one you know right it helped your helped your live shows um were you touring nationally at this point? Yeah, we were touring nationally from about 1980. We'd go to New York and we'd play the South, we'd you know, play in Chicago. So all of us in the band eschewed higher education, mm-hmm. you know, because just we did. And you know, I was just listening to some of our stuff. It's very amazingly harmonically challenging. It was... And in terms of sort of independent and, you know, independence, I look back and I see we were just kids. We were 18 and we didn't go to school, but we were so organized and we yeah. we bought a truck and, you know, all the things that I learned, I part of my path found me at the Kellogg School of Management in Evanston, Illinois. At Northwestern University. Yeah. And uh, I got a scholarship to study there and... And it was amazing. And what was truly amazing was, and not to in any way to belittle them because it was it's still a huge part of my life, and I learned so much. But one of it was just confirming how many of the ideas that I picked up on the road about management, about leadership, about self discipline, organization, structural organization, were the same ideas that they were espousing at the school, this prestigious right. school. Um, 
and it made me feel like that time on the road was by no means wasted. Yeah. Well, there's a couple ways to go about it. I mean, I feel like a lot of people go into music thinking it's going to be a place where they can slack and they're just going to get their money from the record label. And this is the old paradigm, right? Um, get the money and they're going to be a big, they're going to have parties all the time. They're going to live in the penthouse. They're going to get limo rides everywhere. Um, and that myth has been dispelled so many times by so many people. Uh, Jake Schlichter, Schlichter from, sure. uh, whatchamacallit, uh, uh, it wasn't Trip Shakespeare. Uh, 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 yeah, what am I thinking of the band? Uh, closing, closing time. I'm sorry? It'll come to me. It'll come to You'll me. You'll edit it in. It'll we'll sound like you didn't have a, <laughs> any problem with it. Uh, that He wrote a book, you know, So You Want to mm-hmm, Be a Rock and Roll mm-hmm. Star, which is a great book about that. And it, it really is a stark education on the realities of the music business and the way it used to be done. All the, everything's recoupable. Every single thing that the record label gives you is recoupable. But basically, it's a bank with really crappy terms. It's what, what it kind of That's the idea I got out of it. Um, but the people... It, it, working hard isn't necessarily going to guarantee success. But the people who are doing well in the music business that I know are very dedicated to it and are doing the exact same things that you guys were doing in 1982 or 81 or whatever it was. You're extremely organized because you have to be. You're, the challenges are already lined up against you. It's hard enough to make, make a living in life in general. But to do it out of a van and to do it as a musician, an independent musician. Um, I mean, can you imagine how well organized the Velvet Underground was, and the Ramones. Right. Unbelievably so. Yeah. Um, They were together. I mean, to write songs, to do all that stuff, it's whatever the image is, which belies this sense, it just kind of came together. They were very organized. I, I do have to say something about the record companies, too, that... I had three major labels and, and about the bank idea. And I, I know what you're saying, but you did get some money from them and you get some money to make a record. But they did so much more. Right. The thing that they did was they put their imprimatur behind you and the resources that they could bring, the the connections... Right. From a public relations standpoint, from a radio promotion standpoint, they put millions of dollars into my career. And, you know, the, the lack of record companies is kind of a, I wouldn't say a sad thing, but it's a very challenging thing now. Right. And in terms of independence, well, I'll, I'll sum it up like this. I had a friend, I still have a friend, he was in a band called Jay and the Americans mm-hmm. in the early you know, 60s before the Beatles. His name is Kenny Vance. He was also like a music director for Saturday Night Live. And, and he said, Peter, we played the Sullivan Show and we couldn't ride the subway the next day. Mm. We, our band, the Peter Himmelman band, on one of my second records on Island, we toured Central Asia. We should have been playing Cleveland, but we played Tashkent and Azerbaijan. And, and there was one radio station, one TV station, that this production company called Gos Concert set us up with. Now, because there was just one portal, we were instantly famous mm-hmm. in the entire Soviet Union. 
thousands and thousands of people came. And one more point that I thought was so salient when Michael Jackson died, with all the things that were said, I said, you know, Michael Jackson, you could never repeat that kind of success because at the time, not only was he so incredibly talented, but there was one sort of eyeball, one portal, which was MTV. And when Beat It was playing, the entire world was focused on it and not in the infinite myriad outlets such as the Joe Armstrong show or anything that's available now. And not that I mourn it, it's just an interesting, huge differentiation. How do you get people to focus on your thing? And it's getting more and more and more difficult. And it's getting very difficult for people to make a living, therefore. Right. And to, to backstep like one thing, and can, we'll come right back mm-hmm. to where we are. I mean, I would like to make it clear that I, I don't want to give the impression that I'm, I'm just always making the blanket statement that record labels were bad, right? Just like anything else, there were good and bad things sure. about it. Because I think right. it's very, very easy, especially for young musicians who may lament, or people who cross that line, like you said, who jump that the, the old paradigm to the new paradigm. It's easy because of what happened when it kind of collapsed. And I have many, 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 many friends and people I know who've gone through this to just say, oh, that sucked. That whole thing sucked. It was terrible. But I don't think that's quite fair. That was just the kind of the old way it was. That was the old system. And it's it's too easy to just label them, especially now that they've morphed into something different, um, to just like attribute that as the problem. But it wasn't always the problem. And I, well, I just want to make that clear mm-hmm. as a small asterisk. No, that, no, that, that's sure. not my desire to simply demonize mm-hmm. them. Understood. People were being taken advantage of. People are being taken advantage of now. Absolutely. That, that's human nature. That was the way right, it always right, was right. and the way it will always be. And then to bring it back up to where we are now, uh, it is very diffuse, that concept of the communal experience when we were kids. And it's, it's the on-demand world. Again, it's, it's exact, exactly transferable. The internet isn't inherently bad. The fact that everything is disseminated and everything is compartmentalized and everything is, is, is on-demand at all times, niche You know, mm-hmm, you can find, mm-hmm. if you're into uh, polk metal from southern Georgia... You can find a you can find a group for that, or if you're the group making polk metal in South Georgia, you can find your audience, or at least you can try. You know, there's more channels, um, but it does create these new challenges. How do you reach the audience? You've got more channels and more ways than ever before to reach them, but how do you go about doing that? Is the big trick now, and people who are more successful, who have a different skill set. You know, with internet marketing, now they have an advantage against someone who might, in the olden days, have an advantage trying to wooing an A&R person to come exactly, to the show. Exactly, right. Right? The burden, I wonder often if the burden, let's say, to get a record contract was 500 pounds. Right. And you carried it on your back and it was really, really heavy. Very few yeah. people did it. Is it 500 pounds today to sort of make yourself known in the dross of all these other sounds and the din of everything going on. Is it 500 or is it 1,000? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's a commensurate or equal amount of weight that it takes. I tend to right. think it's about the same. Yeah. It was about the same in Roman times. Right. The burden of creating something beautiful, and beauty is defined in many, many ways, uh, that is affecting in some way. That is the burden. 
It is not about the marketing. It's about being so engaged in something that you come out with a dream and you make the dream somehow substantive. And when you do that, you bring something from another dimension, let's say, and you pop it through the pinhole intact whether it's a song or, or, or a poem or a conversation or an, even an ad campaign or the way you cook or the way you make love or when you pull that through, people are saying, I love you for that because we all know there's more than meets the eye. There's more than traffic jams. There's more than cars. There's, there's something ephemeral, something godlike. And when people can dare to pull that into reality, it's very brave, very skillful. It's a courageous act, is exactly what I was going to say. And, 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 and you need mastery, and you need courage, and you need all sorts of things, whether it's athleticism. People get such hope for themselves when they see that. And they, they wonder... And they wonder about existence. Those are the kinds of things that people connect with, not marketing. Right. And we're and we're and I'm sorry to to to, you know wax on here, but we all spend so much time figuring out about marketing. And so, because there's so many places to market, and it's so inexpensive, but we spend so little time figuring out how do we take something beautiful from the other side. Right. Exactly. Well, it's that, the concept, Jason Isbell, a, music, a musician that I really, really like, used to be in a band called Drive-By Truckers, done great work in his past couple of records, was a, a storied alcoholic got himself sober now he's you know won some grammys recently he's making the best music of his career one of the best people going i think um there was an interesting interview with him maybe a year or so ago where someone asked him like well is all you know it, will the does the cream rise to the top is is music good you know is all music good because now we have with the uh availability of technology for everyone to make you can multi-track an album on your telephone now mm-hmm. you know whereas before it took one hundred and fifty thousand dollars of gear just to walk in the door and lay down one note mm-hmm. and his argument was very interesting to me because i feel like he had whether it's true or not he had a kind of a courageous point of view which was that it can't be you know art is subjective and yes of course we should all work to bring things from the other side as you say but there are so many people doing it now um, and in some, you know, some people would say, well, it's kind of gumming up the works, you know, because there are so many people vying for attention and for vying for the eyeballs and then therefore the commerce, which will then allow us to keep doing it. And that's the challenge is making it hard for us to keep doing this. Um, I mean, do you think that it's always a good thing to bring something from the other side or <laughs> is, it, is it like a blanket statement? I mean, it's, it's an interesting perspective to take because I think people want to be the nice guy and say, well, all art is good. People should just always make it and... You know, everyone's vision on what they do is valid. But there are bad automobiles. There is a poorly made cake available, or things that are less nourishing. There are sports teams who are less effective than other teams. Does that apply to the arts and music? Well, and I hope I, was, I, hope I wasn't unclear. 
taking something, quote, from the other side, and I, and I did mention that it takes not only bravery, and it takes incredible mastery. Right, okay. So in order, let's say, setting up a metaphor to take something from the other side, there's a big sieve, a big colander, but the holes are very, very tiny. Right. And something has to be very fine, very refined to pass through this something for the other side. I don't mean to be cynical or derisive, but there is infinitely more out there than there is these works of things that were, quote, pulled from this other side. I mean, they're incredibly rare. Right. And I totally agree. There's so many things out there um, because it's easy to 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 create things anyone can do it and there are more and more things of of lesser value out right. there and there's a rush now to compete in terms of quantity are, are we looking at life in qualitative or quantitative terms and the market is is forcing us it always has this is not new this is again since roman times sell more be bigger commerce this is not a new thing. Um, and we're, we're seduced by this idea of bigger and faster and more. The, the one who's successful is the one who has acquired more, so, right. we, so we think. In our society, Yeah, least. I mean, in, in almost every society. It's not just our American consumer society. Every society, even primitive societies, aboriginal societies, it's human nature. But the work of the artist, I would say, is to try as best he or she can to live a fully qualitative life and hopefully the works that he or she makes are totally reflective of that and emerge with great beauty and mastery to teach everyone this lesson. Stella Adler, I, I'm reading her like crazy now, and I advise everyone to read anything they can get her, your hands on about Stella Adler. One of the things that she speaks about, she's the, you know, the great acting coach. It had nothing to do with acting. It, it's so universal. It has everything to do with life. She spoke in terms of movies and theater, but it's easy to universalize this. And she said, you know, in Europe, they understood this idea so much better, this idea of quality versus quantity. We're here, the ticket sales are everything. And the closer you get to the West Coast, which she felt was just, you know, absolutely living in a quantitative universe, the more and more screwed you are. And that it's your job to constantly bring up from your very feet on the ground this idea of, of quality, of truth. And truth and beauty don't often sell. Right. They do beget truth and beauty. And truth and beauty can, at times, elicit joy at times great pain as well but there's something beautiful about the richness of life itself 
So kind of what I'm sort of positing in the book about people bringing their own ideas to life doesn't mean that they're going to be rich and famous. It doesn't mean that the things that they're going to make are going to be great. But I'm trying to wean people off of having to be consumers of the creations of others, like a professional class of creators, or even a person, this is a sort of a tangent, but a, a person who has spiritual aspirations needs some religious guide person and they pay them X amount of money. No, no, no. You, you can do this yourself. You need to feel this process yourself. It's the most joyous way of connecting with creativity. It doesn't mean that you stop listening to great records and things. But don't have a dull life that you abhor and then amuse yourself by the works of others entirely. Right. Bring your own ideas to fruition, even if it's about a conversation with your mother. Those are all creative ideas. It's almost like reversing the flow. I know when I learned to be a songwriter, whenever that was in my life decades ago, um, I felt like, you know, I'd written a few what I would call crappy songs, right? But I love listening to music. I'm an ardent consumer of music. I love a lot of different things for a lot of different reasons. And this was in college, and I used to have a radio in every room in the house, you know, and I was always playing something. It may not have been the radio itself, but I mean, a boom box or a stereo, yeah. whatever you call it. But there was always music playing everywhere in one room or another. I mean, not different things in different rooms. That's a little kooky. But, um, you know, as I was in the shower, I'd put a cassette in mm -hmm. and listen to music when I was in the shower and while I was getting ready. Then if I was in the bedroom working on something, I had music in there. And then in the, in the, the living room or in the Chicago, we'd say front room, music in the front room. I learned that to create, I had to staunch that flow. I had to turn that off completely. And my mind bucked because it wanted that input. It loved hearing those, the melody and harmony and structure. But what I found was if I could get through the bucking part, kind of like kicking a drug, um, my brain would reverse the flow and then fill that void with stuff that I would create. And it's something I have to remind myself even now, like as I get away from, I listen a lot if I'm not working on a record or working on songs. I have to remember, turn the radio off, turn the television off. Reading books, I guess, is kind of okay because it's more active. But that reversing of the flow, I think, is a key, key facet. And I'm a disciple, uh, it's a weird word to use, but a, a fan, a disciple of Ray Bradbury. He, Bradbury, wrote a lot about creativity, right. how to coax it into being, and how to live with joy, and how to have experienced joy and pain through your art. And I think that touches on a lot of what you're saying. And I want to talk about the book and Big Muse as well. Um, but you, before you were talking about you know art and music, and let's hear you do some of what you do. You brought a guitar. Uh, we've got a bunch of lights and studio, you know cameras and stuff set up here. What's his first live song going to be? Uh, this is a song called Waning Moon. Okay. And give me a little bit of a baseball card about this. What's it, what's, it, what's the story here? Well, I was living in New York, Hell's Kitchen in the 80s, when it was really Hell's Kitchen, bullet hole in the window, uh, transvestite hookers and urinating in my little foyer. And I loved it. It was amazing. Yeah. And we were coming back from some gig, maybe it was up in Boston, and we were coming through what they call the Meadowlands, and there was this moon, looked like a full moon, but you could see it was a little awful. And and the word waning moon mm -hmm. just, once you get a good title, 
it evokes something. You get a little goosebump from a title. Basically, you've the song just pours out. Yeah. So that's this one. When it came out on the record, it was actually uh, a high charting song for us on Island, and it was a like a it was a rock song, but it started out like this. Okay, so Peter Himmelman, the song is Waning Moon on Independence Day. Waning moon Hovering the meadowlands I've been waiting to I don't know Exactly what you're waiting for But does it hurt for me way that it does for you Faded moon Weeping above the meadowlands I feel faded too Time will bring The color to our cheeks again Does it look to me The way that it does to you I can't touch you yet I feel you breathe With a longing that is hard to conceive I can't hear you yet I sing your tune Waiting moon Oh Silent moon Weeping above the meadowlands I feel silent too Looking at all the faces Drained of heart and innocence Does it look to me The way that it does to you I can't touch you yet I feel you breathe With a longing that is hard to conceive I can't hear you yet I sing your tune Waiting moon, oh, waiting moon, oh, waiting moon. That's Peter Himmelman on Independence Day. You can drop by his website is peterhimmelman.com. Lots of M's and N's in there, but it's pretty easy to, it just sounds exact. It's written exactly like it sounds. Also, uh, he's got a website for this book we're about to talk about. It's called letmeoutbook.com. The book is called Let Me Out. Also, he has a company called Big Muse, which is essentially a consulting company that helps uh, people and organizations, you know, maximize their potential through creativity. That sounds like kind of a business asterisk that you would see on a PowerPoint presentation, but is that a correct it summary? It sounds like it's good. We're always trying to figure out, you know, what it is. Yeah. So talk to me about, I want to just, just to get to the point where we're talking about Big Muse and then eventually the book, you know, w- there was a, must've been a point where you realized like things had just shifted dramatically in the industry and you had like an oh poop moment. Where it's like, do you, do you remember that moment in your life? Like in, when the industry shifted and things were going to be different? Well, it shifted, you know, it was slow. Um, you should also note that I had been doing, in between my albums and so on, I was working for many years on network television shows as a composer. Okay. So a show uh, called Bones, a show called Judging Amy, just you know, a bunch of shows. Were you doing more theme music or the like the music like the, the interstitial themes music and or the like interstitial the whole, like, okay. the whole thing? So it's a, it was a whole like 
learning curve. And I did a lot of film scoring. Um, and I enjoyed it to a certain extent, but it's very isolated work. Right. So um, I would be, especially with television, it's just like a fast-moving train and... You're in, you got to turn it around quickly. Yeah, you're in a room 12 hours a day and it fires to put out. Everybody's very anxious because there's meeting air dates, as you know, from radio and so on. This is maybe even more intense. Um, and I would put out records um, and they would just begin to sell less. Uh, and that's when I, I sort of noticed, you know, I can count on selling X amount of records and next record would sell way less, but it kind of struck me the paradox. Here I'm paying a publicity person to say, get me an interview in Paste magazine. Or one of the things that Paste does or rollingstone.com, and it's great service, is that they put your entire album online for streaming. And then you find that every song is on YouTube. And so the idea of of buying a CD, it made less and less sense. And, and here's a point that I kind of want to make. Hopefully it's not like too obscure. People are, in spite of the way we become sort of virtualized and even much more so as you know vr becomes more and more prevalent we haven't even begun to face where it's going we are though made up of bodies and sensations and kinesthetic intelligence and we have stomachs and you know, sexual, or we're not just brains in saline solution. So whereas music slowly, well, historically music was just in the atmosphere. It's, it's invisible, invisible waves that were created by these machines called instruments. All instruments are, are different means of shaping waves. Vibrations. Different invisible vibrations. Vibration. At the turn of the century, we captured those waves somehow, and then we began to sell them. So they were like entombed in some sort of you know, medium of some kind. Um, and then we are very curious, like, well, all of a sudden it came to a CD as in ones and zeros, and we came MP3s, and how did music lose its value? We were, we're, were freaked out. What I'm sort of saying is we should be freaked out that music was ever charged for in the first place. The encapsulation process never could stay forever. And once it was divested from what I call thingitude, the, the, ver, the visceral tangibility, which was a, a, an LP at its height, a double LP with a booklet, reduced to a CD, reduced to a dat tape, the mini disc, which they're trying to ply, and then it just disappeared into ones and zeros. We as humans have an aversion to paying for things that we cannot touch. We're still somehow sensory beings. That's one thing. 
The other thing is, and I ask people this all the time, when is the last time you've listened to a full album, whether on, I forget the delivery system, in its entirety, with sort of to the exclusion of every other activity? Forget when you purchased a full album. That hasn't happened unless you're a complete crazy anomaly, complete outlier. So we know that hasn't happened. When have you actually listened to a full album? And people shake their heads and they, some will bravely say, well, no, 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 I, I, I did. Like, you know, six months ago, my point, we're not interested in music as we once were. The ubiquity of recorded music, that is that it's everywhere, every hamburger joint, in every car, it's selling every ad, better and better, greater voices, greater it's everywhere, and I don't think we give a about it anymore. We don't really care. It's too prevalent. We don't care about it as we once did. It's been devalued to the point of absolutely no value in terms of that. But music, to your point, was um, was all the before it was uh, Alexander Graham Bell, and it was committed to wax, and then to vinyl, and then to magnetic tape, and then to ones and zeros. The devolution, de-evolution. Uh, it was that live music. It was that the fact that it was something that had to be experienced. There was no other way. You couldn't, I guess you could be in a room where the musicians were playing and kind of not pay attention, but the vibrations were still going into your ears from the device, creating the vibration, bouncing off the walls and into your ears, perceived even maybe, in an, you know, not been realizing you're perceiving it. It's there. But that's the only way it was for a long time. Right, and that's still a delight to people. That, the experience of something played live is still engaging to people. And I guess what I'm talking about is this, the idea of recorded music being something something completely other than it was. And, and I said recently to somebody, you know, putting out a new record, which I spent a lot of time doing and a lot of money, and I know every musician is still putting out full albums like the old school. Nobody does it any differently. It's got as much weight as an Instagram post. Right. It's really not a big happening. If I would venture to say that if millions of people were climbing Mount Everest, it too would be less engaging than it is now. If hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people had some a contraption where they were able to surf 100-foot waves, it would also be less interesting to us. Part of the idea was that it was so difficult to do all this, and now it's so easy that your grandma and, your, and her brother can make a nice-sounding record. Certainly. So now, in your life and in your career, to kind of tie it back how we started this whole aspect or this part of the conversation... Um, you know, so you've been doing film scoring, you know, we are, we're the industries, you know, the products being devalued, you know, TV is going to pay for it because they, they need it. Um, they need to have music. Mm -hmm. in there. Um, so where along the line did big muse 
come into being in terms of this? And how did it tie into what you're talking about? Well, I mean, when you're young, as I once was, and music was like a drug, like a religion, like a fully inspiring and engaging means of creating a life for myself. And what that life consisted of, I had really no idea. But once I started having kids, I have four grown children now, something happened to music for me. It took not 38th spot, but it took second. It all of a sudden went from the first to the second which is a huge, huge shift. I mean, it's almost an infinite downgrade. Right. Because there's only one first. Second, third, and 2000, they're already not first, you know? Right. And so when my kids were going to college, um, I just couldn't bear to sit another minute in my studio alone with this TV thing. Some of the shows that I did ended... It's very rare that I had these successful, long-running series, and the residuals are amazing and continue to be from that. But I needed a new career for myself. And I remember that I would be, for, for 15 or so years, I would work with the Telluride Film and you know music festival people. They asked me, would you like to teach our song school? And there were a few teachers, notable songwriters, and it was out in a field in Colorado, just north of Boulder. And, you know, sure, they put you up in a, by a brook with my family. I had no idea how to teach songwriting. Like, it's just something that happens. And I got all these people around me on the first day. And I went like, you know, what's your problem as a songwriter? And everyone basically said the same thing. We all know, all songwriters know this. I have a lot of spare parts. And it at times becomes very difficult for me to create a cogent whole. Now a song, for those of you who don't write songs, just you should know it's differentiated from screenplays or novels or books because it's easy to write. It's not necessarily easy to write a great pop song. It's very difficult. But it can be done quickly, whereas a symphony could take months or years, a screenplay, a book. My book took me four years. So why aren't you finishing these things became a really interesting question, and I would pose to the people. And I said, I think it's a lot of fear, because the, the unfinished song is so beautiful and perfect in our heads. It runs around unadulterated by people's opinions. So I, I created this little, I don't know what you call it, exercise. I said, look, I want you guys, after some seductive, encouraging talk, I want all 40 of you to go out into the woods, take a comfortable spot, and in 15 minutes come back with an entirely finished song. Caveat, if it's a piece of crap, but you've finished it, you have made an entirely revelatory leap into the future of your own sort of, you know, achievement. And they all came back. Someone blew a whistle. 
And to the man, to the woman, to the child, they had this little glint in their eye. And I saw, the, many said, look, I did exactly what you said, caveat, I wrote a piece of crap, but I knew they didn't really think so. They felt that they had, in this compression of time, in this forcing frame, created something very, for their level, very beautiful. Some went on to win awards with their song, some became title tracks. And I said, there's something powerful in this experience. Could this be taken to other organizations? And I started creating a methodology. And I said to some friends of mine, you know, would you hire me for free to do this thing? Basically taking 100 employees out of, out of their jobs. So it was a big ask on my part, even though it was free. And it turned out to be amazingly successful, very inspiring for me, very confirming. And, you know, basically through word of mouth, it spread. And I'm doing work for all sorts of companies and organizations, 3M, Adobe, Wharton School of Management, Ross School at Michigan, um, and it's it's very exciting to me. And as I started thinking about this as maybe some career thing, I also knew that anyone who was successful at this had to have a book. And I had a, an agent at William Morris who was helping me with a memoir book, which is still ongoing. And I shifted gears. I'm going to write a book about this, not knowing anything about what it would be. To kind of, I'm kind of the guinea pig of the book. Bring your idea to life. The full title is Let Me Out, Unlock Your Creative Mind, and Bring Your Ideas to Life. So here, step by step, is this book, My Big Dream, which was just a dream. This was, for me, a a DIY thing, for sure, was that I got a, a major publishing deal out of the thing. It was, like, very shocking in a way. So the the business, you know, continues. I do these things all the time. Um, I hope that the book will bring an even greater distribution. But I find that I'm doing it for uh, wounded warriors, for example. The same sort of methodology that I take to a corporation, but it's very emotional. It's very fulfilling And this idea of me always being the guy on stage, aggrandizing myself, while really wonderful, is less interesting to me now than facilitating the growth of other people. And maybe that's just because I'm a father and husband, or I've just grown a bit. But I I find the future really exciting. Doesn't preclude making new records. Right. But it doesn't rely upon that sort of, you know, disrupted industry either. Now, in one of these seminars, like let's get kind of nitty gritty mm-hmm. about it. Like, are you actually having people who don't write songs write songs? Well, that, or are you kind of is it a malleable concept that you are then asking them to do just something creative? Like, how does that exactly? Function? Well, I mean, you're seizing on what is kind of sort of the ending or central metaphor. Um is that they write a song, lyrics to a song, unless they're somehow facile with harmony. And what I'm trying to get people to do is connect. First of all, everyone wants the same thing. Every company wants 
because this disruption is nipping at the heels of every every industry. Um, super high attrition rates of employees. Somebody can go have an idea and start it on their own. Why do I have to take you know commands from this guy? So the first thing I have people talk about is, which is in the book, is this "why you" question the statement "why you." It's the first thing I ask, and it's it's by design kind of an annoying and weird. Uh, you know, strange question, even the way it's phrased. Why are you on the planet? What are you doing with your life? What is your raison d'etre? And and the funny part of it is, is that I'm going to give you 40 seconds to answer it. And what that does, it it helps to eliminate obfuscation and needless filigree what are you doing here and some people do get clever and go why you and they write why not me and i'm like i get it but answer the effing question yeah because it's important and people say such beautiful things you know type a salesman I want to bring good to the world uniformly. I want to leave a legacy of kindness and charity for my children. I want to use my skills to educate and better the lives of people around me. Now, you could be a cynic, which I sort of am too, and say, yeah, you know, really? You're a guy working at Adobe products. You know, really? But these are aspirational things. And whether we're evincing them every day or not, that isn't the thing. To, to enunciate what your value is on earth is such a liberating thing. Mine is bring joy and hope to people. I can assure you that's not something, words that would ever have come out of my mouth for fear of just plain old embarrassment about as recently as five years ago. It's not rock and roll. It's very effete. It's very wimpy. It's very, God forbid, new age. But to that, I say, it takes balls. You have to be a badass to make those things actually appear in the world. And then I ask these people, the corporation, in many different ways, how does your work relate to this aspiration tell me a story it could be a thousand people in the room tell me a story of one incident that related to this idea of say bringing good to the world and everyone has a story and one guy at adobe products was working in washington dc there was some uh, urban dwelling girl who was going into high school. She couldn't read. And he got her these software products. He got her resources. And he remembers the story was about the day she graduated high school. She was already going to college. And the parents called him and just said, look, I want you to know that you share 
in a measure of our joy for our daughter. And that became the basis of this song that actually somebody wrote for him. So I like people who write for each other. Okay. About And I come with a full-on rock band. We improvise these into songs. It's a very good way to kind of memorialize an understanding. It's just a, it's a deep experience. Never are people not crying and laughing, hmm. you know, the touchstones of something that's meaningful. Earnestness, I think, is something that in our society, in our, this particular age, seems to be not cool. But I've also noticed that some of my favorite people in the entire world that I've ever met, the people I respect the most, are unabashedly and courageously earnest. They're not afraid to say that they care about something or that, this, that something means something to them, something non-tangible. You know, I'm doing this because I love it. I'm doing this because I love it and for no other reason. And I mean, I know lots of people who do things because they love it and for no other reason. And I know lots of people who work diligently at their music careers and other careers as well. But this earnestness concept is something, and I think it, you're, you're kind of, I don't say bottling that, but you're opening the bottle of that and kind of sharing it with people. And if people, here's a question, if people, how many of these do you do for just the general public? Or have you done that kind of thing? Is there enough gravity to go then and like just have a seminar Not that yet. anybody can go to? Not yet. I'm hoping the book will, will generate that kind of idea. I mean, the book is being marketed a lot initially to businesses because that's the initial platform that i've right. sort of developed but it, you'll see in you know in the book it there's nothing really specifically about business at all it's about a general public yeah and for me you know just working with people i get a lot of letters and you know i'm working on this or that and it's very fulfilling i see it i see those kinds of things at some point possibly superseding exclusively corporate. Yeah. I mean, I like them all. To me, corporations, unbeknownst to some people, they're they're staffed with human beings. Humans. They're made of humans. And made of humans. Farmers are humans. Musicians are humans. And everybody is looking, if not to have, you know, earnest is a troubling word. I totally agree. Because in order to be earnest and not be saccharine or hackneyed, you have to also underpin it with some great mastery. You have to have some facility. Earnestness now is analogous to something trite. Right. But what we're getting at is more about innate humanity. You know, what, what is it that makes you human, that makes you vulnerable? And, and I'm the most cynical person in the world. I, I truly am. And I truly could chafe and bridle at horrifically maudlin sentiments. I'm the first one to do that. And probably because I know deep in my cynical heart, I'm longing to find a safe expression for those ideas. This is an interesting little tidbit. And, and how does this go along with this earnestness? I met about two months ago a guy who is, well, he's, he looks odd. He's got a, a hat and a beard. He looks like a, a religious Jew, which he is. 
But if you look at him, he's a little bit taller, a little bit like he looks like underneath all that coat, like looks like he can kick some ass. Well, it turns out for for 12 years, he was, before the beard and coat, he was a commander of the Special Forces Unit in Israel called Sa'eret Matkal. And when I did a thing for the Wounded Warriors a month or two ago, I, I said, you know, Sa'eret Matkal, and I told him this story, which I'll soon say, is kind of like SEAL Team 6, if there even is such a thing. And I told him that this guy, I asked this guy, his name is Avi, this bearded guy, well, how do you get into this, one of the arguably the most elite special forces unit in the world? And he says, well, Peter, you have to first be Israeli. You have to be very strong and fit, physically fit, and you have to have brains and smart... But what we really look for is that someone is able to love another person and someone is able to be loved in return. This is the highest value that we look for. And when I said that to the wounded warriors, because they're thinking, who's this guy with a guitar coming to screw with us? Their whole posture is relaxed because that is the essence of what they're doing the level of trust that it takes to to do these missions requires this bonding, requires this, quote, earnestness, humanity, and love. And one of the guys, after the session, takes off his glasses. He was missing a limb. He goes, you know, before I was uh, had this uh, run-in with an IED, I was a special forces, and I had a chance to work with this group that you call the Serret Matkal. I, I can't tell you where or when, Peter, but I can tell you you were wrong in what you said. I'm like, what do you mean? You compare them to the Navy SEALs. Well, in my opinion, they make the SEALs look like children. <laughs> so it it's not some effete New Age sentiment. Right. You said a very important word in there, and good good accents, by the way. You've, you ranged all the way from... Uh, badass Jewish commando to, uh, you know, maybe rural Dallas, you know, army ranger. That's right. Uh, Definitely, I might add. You said the word vulnerable in there, and I think that's a key facet to what we're doing because people who don't know any better tend to think that vulnerability is then weak. But actually, vulnerability is the strongest thing you can have. To be able to be vulnerable, to be able to be open, to be able to love someone like this uh, is based on that trust and is based on opening the heart, not closing the heart. And I think it's easy. Uh, there's a phrase that keeps bouncing around. It's election season, you know, um, and there's a lot of talk in our society. But what are we as a society? You know, which is it going to be? You know, is it going to be fear or is it going to be hope for lack of a better word? And th- there's strength in vulnerability, I guess, is what I'm getting at. It's like it's more courageous to be vulnerable than it is to just be mean or just be singularly afraid of everything. You know, for fear is normal. Fear is, is part of the human condition. But it's being able to still be vulnerable and to still love in the face of that fear that makes us, I think, that gives us strength. Anyway, so now we're going off into all kinds no, of No, I like regions. it. I like what you're saying. It's funny, too, about vulnerability and how relaxed I was with you so like when i came to your house is our present tense right is exactly (laughs) i don't want you to think i'm talking about something has changed and now you're no longer free no no, you're no no longer okay is and uh 
you know, I first come to the studio, like checking you out and like, what's the deal? And what does he know? What does he assume? And my entire kind of posture is one of, I have to puzzle this out. Right. And now when I, when you're speaking, something about it is connects with me. And so I'm able to become more, quote, vulnerable. Or vulnerable is a, is a tricky word because it, it typically connotes weakness. And maybe it should almost be replaced with openness, which is not weak. And you'll never open yourself up until you feel strong. So you feel like you're not going to be attacked or harassed. Um, and if you are attacked or harassed, do you have the means to, to defend yourself? You know, and who we are as a nation. I mean, who knows at this point? We'll know in about a month, one way or another. Um, you know, the book, by the way, just as a short aside, it's called Let Me Out. It comes out next week, which is October the 11th. And uh, it's on Peng Penguin, I believe, right? Mm -hmm. And everyone should pick it up. Uh, maybe if you work for Adobe, maybe you'll get a copy in your mailbox. But everyone else has to go buy it. Um, so uh, my guest this week, Peter Himmelman, uh, award-winning, uh, Grammy-nominated, correct? Emmy-nominated, correct? Musician, songwriter, uh, has a, a consulting company called Big Muse, which has got some really, really interesting things, interesting things to say uh, about how we should live our lives and how we should tap into creativity. Um, why don't we hear another song? You've got a brand new record. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about your songwriting process mm -hmm. because it seems to me you're extremely prolific. And I'm always curious to see how people do this. And it kind of ties into these all these concepts about creativity sure, and all sure. these concepts about vulnerability. Um, but this is a, a song you're working with Steve Berlin, who uh, yeah. most people would know from uh, Los Lobos. What's the title of this and, and what's the story? Why do we pick this one? Uh, I just like the way these are you know, early mixes that have come in. I just sort of like the way this is sounding. Uh, it's sort of a it's not necessarily about me I don't think me in a dream it's called Smoke and Flames alright so once again Peter Hilleman so happy to bring you him and all the wonderful things he has to say about creativity and life we'll come back after this we'll talk a little bit more about his specific creative process Peter Hilleman on Independence Day My brain 
Hey everybody, my name is Joe Armstrong. Thank you for listening to Independence Day. I'm so proud to bring you visionary artists, artists who are making their way in the new musical paradigm. This week's guest is Mr. Peter Himmelman, dropped by PeterHimmelman.com. Grew up in Minneapolis area, now based on the West Coast, has been for a long time. Very, very prolific songwriter. Peter, how many, do you have any idea how many songs did you think you've finished, like completed songs in your career so far? Ballpark? I don't know. So many. I have a lot of kids' records. Um, you know, I have these things called Himmel Vaults. And like, yeah, I have like eleven of those. Maybe twenty regular albums. I don't think, know. You think over a thousand? Oh yeah, definitely over two thousand. Right about probably about yeah. two thousand. Interesting. I read uh, Brian Adams is a, a songwriter I actually like quite a bit. Oh, I love of, him. Not I, afraid to admit no, that I love, I love Brian him. Adams. He's amazing. Uh, and I just saw him recently. He did the Reckless Tour anniversary type of thing. And I'm not afraid to say that I lo- I like Brian oh, Adams amazing. and what he does. Um, 
really interesting guy, like accomplished photographer, vegan for a long time, like an interesting soul. I would love the mm-hmm. opportunity to meet Brian Adams, just to talk with him, like like we're doing now. I don't want to like be Mr. Fan Guy and sign my record. Like I want to talk to this guy. Um, early on, because he worked with Jim Valance, I think is how you pronounce sure. his name, his songwriting partner. He said that he had written hundreds and hundreds of songs before he even felt confident to bring to bring one to the public as a young writer. And I think that's fascinating to have the discipline to just work so diligently at something. And that's how you get good at it. Um, so what, you know, what is your process? Like your earliest songs, like were you a teenager? Were you like a kid? You know, where were you on your life continuum when you first like figured out that this was something you wanted to be your thing? Well, I mean, I totally remember my first song. Um, and what it did for me was it begat more songs. So, it was drug prevention week in sixth grade. So it was 19, maybe 71, 72. And you had to learn about what would happen if you took drugs. And it was like a cautionary course. So we made these film strips about you'd see dragons. It was like you rubbed off on some sort of acetate and they projected it. And mine was like, you saw monsters and if you smoke pot. I never wanted to smoke pot more in my entire life. <laughs> Seriously. I just yeah. had to get pot. Yeah. But I wrote a song. It was my first song. I had a few chords called Exit. And it was a song about a guy who, very complicated conceit. He was making too many rapid uh, romantic advances on his girlfriend, and she exited his life. And then the first chorus comes exit. And he was so distraught that he smoked pot to exit reality. So the lyrics, as I recall them, I love her and she loves me. It's a world of love. It's clear, can't you see? The night was cloudy, but the stars were bright gave her a terrible fright you really got her going but you're moving too fast you better slow down or it won't last she's gone it's over you're starting to cry you keep it up and you're gonna die your hopes are down and you pick up a J. it ain't gonna help you anyway but you strike a match and you let it burn and i would go for the tremolo pedal on my vocal now your mind is ready to turn its exit it was such a hit And that got us our first gig in sixth grade. And the idea that I could do something that no one else was doing that got me so much attention, and really the attention of girls, because unbeknownst to me, what I really wanted to do was reproduce. (laughs) You know what I mean? Reproduction is so much at the core of everything that we do. And we don't call it reproduction, we call it other things. But this idea of making something to, first of all, fill my mind with great beauty and great joy, and then secondarily to share that and to get a response and this thing went around, and each synergizes the other, the inner motivation, and then the assumed or hoped for adulation begets more. And the trouble for me, really, with the music business somehow is that 
when music started to be less valuable and turn you know it's sort of one of those pieces was kind of missing and so now there's a purity to that in some ways where i'm just focusing on the one aspect the joy that it gives me so why did you make a record you somebody asked why did you make a full album you basically know it's not going to sell much even steve berlin is like yeah i mean it's because it brings us all joy. So it would be as though I was taking my band to go halibut fishing in Alaska, an expensive fishing trip for the guys, which is immeasurably pleasurable. That's what we get out of it. Right. And that's enough to fuel a lot of songs. Before we go any farther, I would like the listening audience to know that, that Peter Hillman just recited the words to his very first song. Written, how many, gosh, 45 years, six years? 56, 40, I was 12 at the time. 10,000 years ago. Uh, very impressive uh, recall there. I mean, I guess I can probably recite the words to my first song, but I'm not going to oh, take I it. Pl- because I the, play the song they're terrible. once in a while. That's very interesting. It was a good song. So, uh, like, so basically what you're saying is initially, like from so, so many people, it was for girls, the attention of girls. Um, like some of, so many of us do, or which eventually translated to adulation, which then translated to reproduction. It was always for reproduction. Yeah. But I mean, it was two things. It was one, it was for the initial joy of the doing, mm-hmm. which was so amazing that I could do this. And then it was turning and bringing it to somebody. Yeah. So now fast forward, you know, let's take you to around the time of your first album. You know, at that point, did you feel like how many? It's not a. It's really not about this. The number of songs. I'm just kind of curious as mm-hmm. someone who's such a prolific writer. Because I mean, I'm I'm constantly fighting to bring songs into the world. Some kind of drop out of like the songwriting guff that just then <laughs> exist unto themselves and they're bored and off they go. And other songs I've been I've been kind of wrestling with for two years, five years, ten years. And like you said before, a long time ago in this, they're they're component parts or they're mostly mature and. You know, for me, you know, and just reading some of this book, Let Me Out, which everyone should go purchase, uh, it's your favorite bookstore or online retailer, is it's a, it's a function of that song is a, it's a, it's an unwrapped gift. And when someone gives you a gift and it's still wrapped, that song can be anything. It can be the, that gift can be anything. It could be the greatest thing I've ever wanted in my entire life. But until I open it, I can imagine it's whatever I could possibly want it to be. But once I've opened that gift, now I know what it is, Right. It's like that kind of like, I mean, you're Jewish, it seems. Uh, Christmas Eve is a thing for us. Like, I always liked Christmas Eve more than I liked Christmas because the, it was it had yet to happen, the anticipation of what those things could be. And it's not even so much about things, but the experiences I would have with those things. They, they could be anything. Because it, it holds infinite potential exactly. and possibility. Once it's defined, sometimes it exceeds your possi- you know, right. possibility. But it often is just, it's now just a limited thing. And then you want to do another thing right. to bring something into being. Is, to, is giving birth to right. ideas in and of itself is a very pleasurable experience. Right. Songs feel very much like children to me. It's a metaphor I use a lot. Mm-hmm. Whereas some children, 
you raise you raise them, you bring them into the world, you raise them, and they're kind of easy. They don't complain very much. They just kind of go off about their business. They become sentient beings, and then they're off and going. And other they can you know in a song metaphor, it's like you write a song, and other people you write it. Maybe someone else covers it, and off it goes. It has a life of its own. It's you brought it into the world. You're always associated with that, but it's off doing its own thing. And like some kids, man. They've got their own ideas and they're out to make sure you're miserable just because it's the nature of their thing. But it's still your, your goal as a parent to guide that into the world and make that kid or that song the best thing that it can possibly be, even though it's fighting you every step of the way. Um, so to tie it back into your career, like when you, you know, at the time of your first album, like for example, you said you brought Steve Berlin maybe 55 songs or so for this most recent project. It's just going to come out in the fall or uh, thereabouts. Um, you know, on your first record, like you and your band, were you co-writing with them at the time? Were you the guy that's writing? And Not then, so much. And if so, like, did you bring in 20 songs or like, how did it go? Yeah, I probably had maybe 40 songs. I mean, I had yeah. songs. I just was like, you know, I could, do you know that I can write a song about anything at any time? Mm-hmm. I've, well, I've read that that's, that's Do you want to test me? Sure. Just, you know, on Go the ahead. free mic. Maybe I'll suck. You could edit it out. Oh, sure. Well, let's, uh, let's play a little game. So, I mean, here's part of how this works. If I scare myself, like if we were doing this live, I did this live for 2,500 people once with Ariana Huffington. Mm-hmm. And I said to the audience, look, I'm going to do this thing, which will show how fear can be generative of creativity. I'm going to do this thing, which I'll write a completely finished song. Somebody in the audience will name the title and I'll make a song about it. And it'll be so like real that I'll have to add stuff that's happening in the room. So you won't think we set this up in advance. Sure. And the more I say it, the more I scare myself because it could go horribly wrong. But if I interpret it as the tension more like pulling back on the bowstring in a bow and arrow to allow the arrow to fly, if that's my intention, there's greater odds that this thing will materialize. So, uh, you know, let's try it. Sure. Anything you want to me to sing about let's uh let's just kind of go random things we'll use stuff that are close by in the room here let's say lava lamp uh we've got a globe let's just use lava lamp or globe okay let's use both sure steve was talking about humidity the air was quite damp I was sitting in his room looking at the globe and the lava lamp. That lava lamp remind me of the 60s. Yeah, when we were young. These words I'm singing for Steve, well, they're just rolling off my tongue. Yes, it was like we were free at summer camp when I was singing about the globe. That globe and the lava lamp. Now when I'm looking at the globe, I see Australia, an island out in the sea. I'm thinking about something I know that Steve's gonna agree. That we can't be sitting around in the park. Yeah, we can't be taking this as a lark. We can't be sitting in the dark. 
You know we've gotta be up, we can't be so damn like a scamp. We gotta be singing about a song, about a globe and a lava lamp. Very nice. This is where I would cue in the uh, <laughs> the fake applause, the, the, the fake applause, the applause track. It's an, I have another friend who's done something very similar, and he he generally does it with children. Mm. And he he says he he derives no end of joy to doing that with kids because you know, like I'm an adult, I pick something in the room, you know, there's a lava lamp over there, there's a globe over here to my right, and the by the way, this is the Independence Day World Headquarters, is what I like to call this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these are the things that are that are in my life. But kids, you know, they're new. The world is still imprinting on them. Their brains are in right mode. Everything's constantly going in. So who knows what kind of random stuff their kids are going to come up with. And it's the craziest, funny stuff. And he, like I said, it's like ecstasy as a songwriter to do that with children. Have you done that with, you must have done that yeah. with children. Yeah, all the time. Sometimes I do kids shows that are basically all just improvised. Yeah. Now, okay, so now, man, just, do you have, Tom Waits likes to, he's got a songwriter that I also revere. Um he likes to play different instruments, the ones that he's not comfortable on, or even invent instruments, mm. because he likes, he says, his, and this is, these are his words, his hands are like old dogs. They're just going to go down the same paths over and over and over again. And I know mine are too, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to default to low chords because I like long strings and resonating sounding stuff when I play. Do you ever use tools to get yourself out of your comfort zone other than just trying to write a song about lava lamps and globes or whatever happens to be befall you at the time? Well, you know, I play a lot of piano too. So like the songs that I write on piano are really different harmonically from guitar. They're a little bit more rich harmonically sometimes. Um, Of course, different tunings. Um, sometimes just writing songs without any instrument at all. Um, I think one of the best songwriting or any kind of creativity uh, generating experience is, is just a new emotional experience. I write about in the book different things that people could do. One of them is we used to do when we were out on tour, used to annoy the band, the idea, because we woke up like at 7 in the morning and we played children's hospitals on tour in every city. And it wasn't so much like Good Samaritan. It was just like this is a really intense environment, much more than you'll be ready for. And, And we went to these things where kids on a, God forbid, like a kid's cancer ward. And all of a sudden, you're looking at the parents who are there, and the kids are just kind of happy or or tired, but it's the parents. And you are in a totally different frame of mind. That's a new instrument for your new dog, old dog hands. You're not thinking about the world as you were when you walked in. And to me, that's the, that's the greatest shifter. Pushing yourself into a raw area or an area where you then become vulnerable or there you become or just you receptive become to things. different where your assumptions about the world, which we normally function purely on our assumptions, we know this, we know that, and now we're kind of a bit on autopilot. Well, here we're shifted and shaken entirely out of these assumptions the world is 
again as it truly is, as it truly should be, a place of mystery and wonder. Yeah. Forcing yourself, and I think that's something as humans age, that something new experiences is something you actually have to kind of farm in a way. Because I think it's human nature to get settled into what's comfortable for you and settled into your house. You know, how you've worked very hard. A house is the biggest thing most people ever purchase. So you get that house, you're not going to leave very soon. You're going to be there a while. And then things things start to pile up. And that's not bad necessarily, but things are going to pile up. Your book collection and your record collection and your guitar collection and your people collection, your wife and your kids and all your collection, pictures and your experiences. Um, but the world keeps moving forward. The world keeps having new things and new experiences keep generating whether you're there to experience them or not. And I think, and I, I tip a hat to you for like being prescient the right word or being attentive enough or perceptive enough to know that that's part of what you have to do. Both as an artist and as a human. So, well, let so me kudos, and, man. and let me say, you know, let me deflect some of those kudos and be totally honest. I'm so much a shut in at times, you know, to know that you need to do this stuff. And and by the way, I should just say, you know, I don't present myself as an expert in any of these areas. Not in creativity. Not in songwriting i just i'm going through the process and taking some notes on it i don't have it down i don't have it mastered i haven't licked my fears i haven't eradicated them and nor will you you know if you read my book you're not going to change your entire the way that you are you're going to have some tricks to buy some time right? to make some things that you may not have made before. And those little tricks may provide some pathways. But you're always going to be the anxiety-ridden fool that you were before. Right. With a few more tricks. You know, that's well, it. Yeah, Peter, well, there's no, there's no magic bullet. There's no golden arrow. Um, and a phrase that I like to use in my own life is the journey. I mean, it, it sounds so pat. But I really do believe this. Like the journey is the destination, right? This path that we're on, that we're doing day by day, the droll stuff that we do, the simple stuff we do, the things we don't want to do, the things we do want to do, that's the experience. Because at the end of it, we're not going anywhere other than dead. That's the ultimate, that's, that's what's coming for all of us. And I'm not trying to say that to be negative or fatalistic about any of this, but death and taxes, I mean, that's coming, right? But enjoying the ride, smelling the flowers, um, and having a good experience along the way and making, ideally making the world a better place for other people around you is kind of the thing, having those experiences and, and sharing that with other people. So there's my greeting card philosophy. I'll well, leave, you know, I like that. it. I mean, these things don't get to be pat unless they're packed with meaning. That made me think of something that I've been thinking about and talking about, which is this idea of achievement, which I have always been, you know, thinking about high achievement and wanting to be a high achieving person. And I'm recently thinking that the nature of my achievements has been all wrong. Maybe an achievement could be to do way less, mm -hmm. to sit in stillness, to wonder, to rest, to have conversations. Those are also achievements. 
that I've been, you know, overlooking because I've interpreted this word achievement based on my fears of being left behind and so on, you know, taking another look at achievement in that light. You know, it, it straddles a line between like laziness, but in some way, for me, by repeating these same types of achievement, there's laziness there too. The old dog hands of Tom Waits coming again. These are pathways that I know really well. This other thing requires something of an extra effort for me. Yeah. Peter Himmelman, you are the most Buddhist Jew I've ever met in my entire life. I mean, from what I understand about Buddhism, and it's like the avoiding of suffering and the stillness and the being in the moment, like, it's it's actually pretty, it's, it's very fascinating. Do you ever think about it in those terms? or? Well, I mean, you know, we'll have a whole another few hours on, <laughs> you know, Judaism is like a, a very unknown quantity. Yeah. You know, how did it inform Buddhism is an interesting one as well, because yeah. it preceded it by over a thousand years. Yeah. So I think about it. Yeah. Well, good. And these deep, I mean, it's been, uh, let's get another song in. We got to get, we got yeah, one more sure. set up here and then we got to kind of roll on out here. We'll just talk about the future just a little bit when we come back. But what's this last song you've got prepared for us here? This is a, uh, a rudimentary, you know, well, it's not a rudimentary song. I hope I can pull it off because it's been a long time since I played it. But I really like the song. Um, I play it live a lot. It's an interesting harmony to it. It's, just a wistful song. I'm always looking for a good wistful song. It's called Time Just Flew. Okay, Peter Himmelman, one more time on Independence Day. Time just flew We rode it, it took us away and now we too are older and speckled with grey we look back on our many hopes some we let go and some we choose time just flew Start spreading the news Things fall down We can't stand to leave them this way This whole Town is tumbling into decay. I suppose it's a function of some unwavering principle of change. Things fall down, and I tell you it's strange.
Could I leave you forever? You are etched in my soul Time just flew And it's out of control Very, very nice, Peter, man. Thank you so much. Thank you for being on the show. Uh, I, I highly encourage people to check out this new book. It comes out next Tuesday, which is October the 11th. Uh, it's called Let Me Out. Unlock your creative mind and bring your ideas to life. We spent the last 90 minutes or so just kind of waxing prophetic about how we make our lives go, how we make other people's lives go. Because I think that's something you do, most people come to as they become either a parent or they mature even just a little bit in their lives. They stop looking in the mirror and they look outward. You know, they want to make other people's lives better. And you're, you're doing good things, man. It's pretty cool what sure. you're up to. And I really do hope you get to a point where you figure out a way to take these seminars to the general public. I mean, without getting all Tony Robbins about it. Like, I don't know how exactly how that, what that looks like. Um, but that seems like a really, really fun thing to be a part of. Right. Um, and then you've got a new record coming out. It's where you have Steve Berlin from Los Lobos is the producer. So we'll look forward to that. What else is on your on your radar? What's coming up? You know, for the end of the year, early some, next year. You know, vacations, going up to Alaska, visiting people in Minnesota, probably setting up a rock and roll tour. And I think it's people appreciate it when you come out like in December. Yeah. Like they need a distraction in December, man. No, Whether right. doesn't matter what your religion is, everybody's got relatives that annoy the living bejesus out of them. So you <laughs> got you need something other than Jim Beam to get you through the holidays. I think. Right. Uh, and so from PeterHimmelman.com is the best place people can go for all this stuff. LetMeOutBook.com is the website for the book itself. Big Muse, which is your company, BigMuse.com, if people want to learn about the seminars that you do. And again, I can't thank you enough for taking the time out and doing this, man. It's been, a, it's been an absolute joy talking to you. And I hope we get to do it again sometime. Absolutely. Thank you, know, you I don't know if you're, I don't know if you're a, a pint of beer kind of guy, but I would love to have this conversation over a pint of beer sometime. That would be, you know, kind of run the recorders for that one i hope i hope so that's i'm trying to find a way to integrate that in but i haven't figured out exactly how to that just yet so thank you ever so much to peter hillman also to the independence day staff dale tanksley wayne topinski and sally shackleton the well-heeled tony tone loke piscotti manages the independence day website good guy there independence day steam music was composed by great lakes myth society always one of my favorite bands for independence day as always i am joe armstrong if you do one thing today please be good to one another